Why don't you turn your idea into a reality with Squarespace? Wouldn't that be nice? Yes, it would. Because here's the thing. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind, with beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. So head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. If you don't mind, I'm going to say real quick that we have a Cracked Podcast tour coming up this spring. And you shouldn't mind, because that's very exciting news. Especially if you're anywhere near Chicago, we are at Lincoln Hall in Chicago, April 11th. And then we are in St. Paul, Minnesota, April 12th at the Amsterdam Bar and Hall. So Chicago, Twin Cities, and, you know, lots of places near those two. I really hope you'll be able to join us for those new live shows in this kind of new tour experiment we're doing, seeing how it goes on the road and seeing how much fun we can have doing it. Tickets are linked in the food notes. And in the meantime, here's the show. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, also known as Schmitty the Champ, and I am also, also pretty sure you have a whole app on your phone for stocks. Yeah, my, my iPhone came with one. It is called Stocks. And when I first got the phone, I just stuck that Stocks app in a folder of other apps I had no interest in using uh, and I was just going to ignore forever. That was my plan for an app that tells you how the stock market is doing. I have changed since then, but also I feel like that Stocks app is a sneakily good metaphor for the entire economy. Because here's the thing, you do not have to have any interest in the economy for the economy to have an interest in you. Which is why our topic this week is how to be less confused about the economy. One more time, that is how to be less confused about the economy. And I am so grateful we have our guest this week because he is the all-time heavyweight champion of making people less confused about the economy. It's kind of amazing. And by kind of amazing, I mean completely amazing. He is the host of an incredible radio show and podcast called Marketplace with Kai Ristall. And surprise, surprise, his name is Kai Ristall. He's an Emmy winner, a veteran of the U.S. Navy and of the U.S. Foreign Service, and has hosted Marketplace, uh, most likely on your public radio station, since 2005. It is the most popular broadcast show about the economy in America. It also broadcasts five days a week, uh, so I am very, very grateful he stacked up some time on top of that to talk to me and talk to you about how to understand what is going on when that next big news story breaks across your cable TV screen or your Twitter feed or something else just saying, hey, there's this big economic indicator. And you're like, "Okay, I, I think that's a thing. It's time you had a better idea of what kind of a thing it is. So let's get into it. Please sit back. Or sit with the Stocks app open, and you can play this game where you like think of a company, and then you try to guess their ticker symbol, and then you find out with the Stocks app. It's very fun. Last time I was playing, I was using the company 3M, you know, that makes tape and stuff, and I was like racking my brain, like, what could their ticker symbol be? And it turns out it's just the letter M three times. It's great. Uh, it's literally 3M. It's really into it. And either way, uh, here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Marketplace's Kai Ristall. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then.
And as we were setting this up, I believe we started setting it up when the government was turned on still. I know, When right? it was still a it's, thing. And here we are. <laughs> I can't even with this. And and looking at kind of how that stuff gets covered, I believe you've covered other past shutdowns too, but uh, how is this one uh, different, if it is at all? Not only have I covered past shutdowns, like the, you know, the, early, the ones earlier last year in 2018 and then the 2013 shutdowns, but in, in 95 and 96... During the Gingrich-Clinton shutdowns, I was actually in the Foreign oh. Service. I was in the language training in the Foreign Service. And so I got shut down for those 21 days. Oh, you and were it, in the story. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, it was, <laughs> and it was great because, you know, I was young and my girlfriend and I were just kind of hanging around and there was, there was no rent. There was no nothing, right? Yeah. And we were just kind of having time off. But now, this is a much bigger deal and it's a much more serious thing, so... So it's not just a vacation no, to I, be shut down. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, <laughs> especially for those folks... Who, you know, I mean, this is like their livelihood, right? It's a bummer. Depending on when this drops, it will either be immediately on the heels of or still during the longest uh, shutdown in U.S. history. Just just uh, yeah. the government not being right. turned on. And well, are we proud yeah. of that? I don't know. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Among a range of things about it, uh, you guys at Marketplace here are covering the economy and how it's doing. Yeah. And it's been interesting to learn that you're starting to lose some numbers uh, yeah. and some data and some things you need to so, do it. So look, I mean, the, the American <laughs> economy is a $19 trillion beast, right? That's pretty big. And you have to be able to measure this stuff so you know what's going on. And the problem is that there are parts of this government, the Department of Commerce most particularly, that are shut down. So we're not getting yeah. economic data, right? And so the Federal Reserve, which certainly does its own economic research, but they don't have key indicators. And, you know, oh, look, Jay Powell talking about interest rates. He kind of is running blind here, as are those of us who cover the American economy. It's a little, it's a little tricky. <laughs> well, and, and Jay Powell is the chair of the He's Fed. He's the chair of the Fed, yes. I'm yeah. sorry. Because th- these are the kinds of things where I hear about the chair of the Fed a lot. I've done my best yeah. to understand it. But I feel like the average person, <laughs> like a story just comes across Twitter or cable news about, oh, the chair of the Fed did a thing. Yep. It's it's sort of a mysterious figure, I think, for a lot God, of people. God, that's so interesting because he's, <laughs> he's, like, he's, he's in my practically every waking, working moment, right, what the Fed's going to do with interest rates. So there is the central bank, the Federal Reserve of the United States, which is in charge of, and I, stop me if I get too wonky, it's no, in no. charge of Let's monetary policy, right? And monetary policy for the civilians out there means interest rates. So the Fed controls a key interest rate in this economy off which many other interest rates are based. Your car loan, your mortgage is affected, all of that stuff. So it is a way to think about interest rates is it's the price of money, how much it costs you to borrow money. And so when Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, comes out with a speech or has a press conference after their meetings, it is watched and parsed like we used to parse the Kremlin and who was standing on the wall of uh, Red Square next to Brezhnev, for those of you who remember those <laughs> days, right? That's exactly what it is. It's craziness, but that's that's what it is because it, it's really seriously an important thing. And and it's just reading tea leaves, at oh, least yeah. to an extent, right? For like sure. It's one guy's statements. We, we try to divine their intentions, right? And, and so what happens is after they meet on interest rates, the Federal Reserve will come out with a statement, right? And it will say, we judge the American economy to be blah, blah, blah. And indicators are blah, blah, blah. And literally, you go through it line by line and say, ooh, they said judged this time, and they said estimated last time. What could that possibly mean? It's honest, <laughs> honest to God. And, and here's the catch. There are trillion, it sounds ridiculous. Right. I know it sounds ridiculous, right? I was a history and political science major. I am not an economics guy. But it, there are trillions of dollars that ride on what the Fed does. So, yeah, so you have yeah. to do that, right? And, and you know, they, they try to be transparent and they try to be calm and steady and not upset the apple cart. But people look really closely at what they're doing. 
And that job, it, it seems like it's uh, partly appointed, like there's a nominee by the president and then and then someone is Yeah, so the reason you're asking that question, I guess, is because the president has talked a lot in the last six weeks, two months, about Jay Powell, the Jer- Jerome is, is his given name, and how even though the president appointed him, he gave him the job, the president has decided he's not happy with the chairman of the Federal Reserve because the chairman of the Fed is doing, in all honesty, what he ought to do, which is raising interest rates, maybe talking about pausing now, but he's doing what is best for the economy. And if you raise interest rates, presidents don't like that because that can have the effect of slowing down an economic expansion or an economic boom. And yeah. so when the president talks about firing Jay Powell, first of all, that's bananas because it is just the most norm-breaking economic thing he could do. But also huh. it's not sure he has the it, – it's not entirely clear he has the power to do that. But it's upsetting the apple cart of that very steady thing that the Fed tries to do. And look, let's be clear. Presidents have criticized the Federal Reserve forever. That's Uh not new. But what the president is doing now is A, personalizing it, B, taking it out of all kind of context, and C, I suppose, talking about firing the guy, which which is insanity. Taking something personal and talking about firings all the time. Shocking. From this president. But this president would do yeah. that. Uh, you know, <laughs> and in terms of the system being shut down, and, and I believe about 800,000 people yep. are not working, there's other people who are in some kind of limbo where they have to work, but they don't get paid. So this is the essential versus non-essential worker dilemma, right? <clears throat> yeah. So 800,000 people are affected by this shutdown because their departments or agencies have not been funded. There are 450,000-ish, plus or minus, who have been furloughed, furloughed. That is to say, go home, do not come to work, do not get paid. Mm-hmm. And then there are 350,000 or so about whom they have been told, listen, you're not going to get paid, but you still have to work because you are an essential worker. That stuff like TSA, which, you know, is still working because you have to keep those folks working, right? Border Patrol, all those guys. The thing that's happening now, though, and this is where it gets really political and kind of interesting, is that the White House is using its authority to designate workers as essential to bring them back to perform certain functions that are lessening the impact of the shutdown on the American people. The really good example is bringing back IRS workers to process refunds. So the IRS was almost completely shut down. Now it's, I think, more than half of the Internal Revenue Service's employees are back, have been declared essential. They're still not getting paid because the president uh, has decided and the law requires, honestly, that refunds have to be paid. But it's it's ameliorating the impact on the American public. So the public is not feeling it. But the president's also using it for things that are inside his policy wheelhouse. For example, he's bringing back some people to review offshore drilling contracts so that offshore oil drilling can proceed, ah. right? You have, to get, you have to get those leases done and you get those leases signed. So it's the Department of Interior, I think, who's in charge of that. So he has brought back some people at the Department of Interior so they can review and sign off on offshore drilling leases. So the, the government is almost not turned off. It's just that the just president that is selecting right. which parts he wants to run right. and right. which people did not pay. Right, right. <laughs> but there's 800,000 people out there who are missing mortgages and missing car payments and just generally getting jerked around. Whether or not they're back when this airs, like, is there any sort of way we can measure just 800,000 people essentially becoming unemployed or not getting paid? Like, what's a similar hole in the economy uh, if it's not the government doing it. Well, so look, so so let's back it up for a minute, right? The American labor force is 163 million people, plus or minus. So so 800,000 is not a huge chunk, but it's a sizable number of people. The problem is, or the trickle-down effect, is that when 
you know, half of those 800,000 people miss a car payment, then those auto dealers or the services of those loans don't have that money coming in. And so they can't do X, Y, and Z. And maybe they don't hire as many people, or maybe they sort of start shutting down people or furloughing them. And it trickles down from there. And that's just fundamentally a bad thing. It's just not good for this economy. Yeah. Well, and, and you guys have done some great reporting on those people. It seems like they're in some kind of limbo because if they're fully furloughed, non-essential, a lot of them are applying for unemployment. Oh, yeah. Even yeah. though I would imagine they're like technically still employed. Right. I don't quite understand right. a lot of things about the, uh, the legal uh, ways we make people exactly. work. Exactly. Amy Scott out of Colorado did a story for us yesterday as this tapes on exactly that issue. Right. Yeah. On what do you do? Are you employed? Are you not employed? Are you active looking for work? What? It's it's a mess. And and somebody had a catch twenty two where they are sort of fired by the government by this. So then they're applying for unemployment, and then their unemployment office said, "Okay, prove that you had your previous right. employer." Right. But then and the you government can't because the government shut down, and you can't get that letter that says you had that previous employment. Here's another right. one. Here's another one. <laughs> TSA agents, it's my understanding, are barred from seeking outside employment without approval from their employer, right? And that's not going to happen. So Because their employer you know, is not working. Yeah. But look, it's, it's bad news. It's bad news for this economy. It's bad news for American politics. It's just bad. You guys are doing such a great job of like humanizing this and focusing on it. I feel like it is the media in general, not to just claim that they're doing a terrible job because many places are working hard at it, but how equipped are they <laughs> to to cover something like this, especially when it yeah, it usually doesn't happen and is not on this scale. Well, so so let me give you the, the public radio pitch here, right? We have yeah. the great luxury of not having to fill like cable news on that TV behind you 24-7, right? News, 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 even when there are no developments, right? So we have yeah. the luxury of going out and finding people and taking the time and explaining it and doing it in discrete chunks as opposed to just doing the fire hose here, you know? Right. Which is, which is <laughs> the curse of cable news. Well, and, uh, and in terms of the kind of stories they cover, like one would be that that Fed chair change. I feel like it, it also seems to be a story if the Fed changes interest rates or if they don't. Yeah. And then that just blares on the television and, yeah. uh, and you're supposed to just know. Right. The price of money changing, is that mainly impacting people who have some kind of outstanding loan like that, like for a car or a mortgage or, or some other large thing? Yeah, well, sort of. It depends on the technicalities of your loan, right? If you've got a 30-year fixed mortgage, then the Fed raising rates isn't going to affect you because you're paying whatever it is now, 4.5%, right? Yeah. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if you're in the market for a new home, if you're trying to get a new credit card, if things are tight and you've got some kind of adjustable rate loan or a variable rate mortgage, that's dicey, man, because those rates go up. Now, of course, yeah. rates go down too, but... It's the kind of thing where if it affects all the people around you, it affects you too. So that goes to the sort of the, the herd mentality of this whole thing. And a great example of that is the stock market, right? And this notion of the wealth effect. When the stock market goes up, everybody just feels richer. If you listen to Marketplace <laughs> and, you, and you hear the happy music and you hear us playing, we're in money. And I say oh, Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 297 points today, 2.3%, right? Everybody's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's great. I have a theory, by the way, on the numbers that people listen to the first three bars of music and they don't hear anything I say for the next 45 seconds. Because they, <laughs> oh, market's up. That's it, right? But that's the wealth effect. And so that, you know, that's why the president's all over the stock market going up, right? He right. says, oh, stock market hit 26,000 today, record high or, you know, whatever it is. And that plays into people saying, oh, stock market's up, Wall Street's doing fine, economy's good, and that's great. And, and you never hear him talking about it going down, right? You never hear him talk about volatility because those things make people go, ooh, 
Maybe I need to not buy so much. Maybe I need to cut back on my spending. Maybe I need to just, you know, let my money sit in my bank. And that has real economic impact. And it's all from essentially that one number people report. I know there are a few indices, but they'll yeah, usually be like, Dow Jones know, is up or down. Right. And then there we go. Right. The, the, the Dow is the biggie, but let's remember it's only 30 lousy companies in this economy. There's the S&P, there's the Wilshire, there's a bunch of them. I feel like as far as people trying to care about economic news or get into it, if they don't own stock, I feel like people's instinct is, if I don't own stock, I don't need to know about how stocks are doing, even though there is that kind of broad effect that trickles down from everybody else, right? Yeah. yeah. So there, there is that wealth effect that affects everybody, right? And it affects the, the companies and the people around you. The other thing is, this is our value proposition, right? If you don't understand the things in this $19 trillion black box that we call the American economy, if you don't understand what's going on, at least on a very basic level, it will bite you on the fanny. And the crisis and the recession is the best evidence of that, right? We didn't yeah. know what Wall Street was doing. We didn't know how heavily securitized, however, how heavily sliced up and sold off all those mortgages were, right? We didn't know the bets that people were making. And look, we missed a lot of that in our coverage too. But if we had all been paying a little bit more attention, then maybe the impact would have been less. Our program is here to raise the economic intelligence of the American public. Right, because there are economic forces that shape our lives, and you have to know about them. That's why we come to work every day. It's it's almost a little bit counterintuitive coming off of that, but one thing I have picked up from the show and from other things is the idea that the stock market is not the entire economy. The stock market yeah. is not the entire economy, <laughs> and uh, you know the stock market's not the economy. The economy is not the stock market, right? Right. Some huge portion of people are not invested in the stock market. That's fine. A lot of people don't have retirement accounts. That's fine. But look. Let's look elsewhere for economic indicators. What's the price of gas? Oh, right? yeah. How many help wanted signs are on the stores on Main Street in your town in Michigan, right? What's the price of real estate? There, there are all kinds of indicators. There are all kinds of ways to figure out what's going on in this economy. The stock market is one of them, but it's not the whole smash. It's just not. One I picked up from the show is that FedEx's uh, success or failure is an indicator well, of the entire global think, economy. Think about what FedEx amazing. does. UPS <laughs> is another one, right? Yeah. I mean, if if your business is built on shipping the things that people have bought or sold in the global economy, then that's a really good indicator of the health of the global economy. So when FedEx the other day came out and said, we're seeing some softness in China, right? Or we're, we're, our profits aren't going to be what they were. And oh, by the way, Fred Smith, the CEO said this entire problem, by the way, in the global economy is man-made from tariffs and barriers to Brexit to that whole deal. <laughs> Just right? fighting. When, yeah. <laughs> when FedEx says stuff like that, you have to listen, right? Because they've yeah. got scale and they've got global reach. And, they, and they've almost been like tracking it all for us, especially right. with the government shutdown. We can say, right. oh, well, how, how busy is this one private yep. company? And with some of those, some of those other kind of uh, sneaky indicators you mentioned, like how far-reaching is a gas price change? Because we see that often and on a big sign in so, our town. So gas is tricky, right? Because it's it's down now and it's also really volatile, changes a lot. So the Federal Reserve and, and government statisticians, when they're not shut down, they tend to exclude those from what are called core prices. We get core prices on inflation, which is the- Core prices. Right. Okay. So, so we get a thing called the consumer price index every month, which is uh, a proxy for inflation. It's, it's how much prices are going up and down. And you've got a headline number, which includes everything in that basket of goods that people look at. But then you get what's called the core number, which excludes food and energy, because those numbers bounce around a whole lot. Right? Oh, why is that? Because, well, let's look at gas. Gas is based on the price of oil in large measure, yeah. right? And oil is an extremely volatile, no pun intended, 
commodity in this economy, right? Its price is subject to geopolitics and supply and demand and all kinds of things, right? Yeah. So the price of the price of gas can change, as you know, a lot. The catch is that for American consumers, it is basically the only thing that we buy on a regular basis that is out there in letters 14 inches high that you drive by every single day. And so you see it, and so you're acutely aware of it. And that's why gas prices can be a sort of a, hmm, what's going on out here kind of thing. I I hadn't thought of it as an egalitarian good. Every town, rural, urban, anywhere has Has a gas station, (laughs) right? And it's got those prices. It seems like there's sort of a batch of key monthly reports that always come up, like that consumer price index. Also, uh, job reports are such a thing. When people see like a job report, I feel like that number just gets reported and it's like, oh, we gained this couple hundred thousand jobs and that's it. Right. How much does that actually mean? So here's my little spiel on on the jobs report. So it comes out every month. It is one of those, you know, A-list economic indicators. But as with everything, it's not the whole solution, right? You have to look at it in a broadly contextual thing with gross domestic product and inflation and all that stuff. But the jobs report is important because A, jobs. People need them, right? <laughs> it it's, does involve it's, jobs, It's a yeah. key part of this economy yeah. since consumer spending or spending on behalf of consumers is 70% of this economy. As I said earlier, the, the American labor force is 163 million people, plus or minus. And so the sort of the, the fallacy of the monthly jobs report is that we're trying to measure this thing of 163 million people in increments of 100,000, plus or minus, right? I mean, you know, we've been adding 200,000 jobs a month for the past, on average, Nine, you know, years. nine, ten years, yeah. right? Which is really good. But let's not look every single month. I mean, I get that that's the headline and I get that we do the job story every month, but let's look at it over time. Let's look at the previous six months. Let's look at the previous year and see how we're doing. And we've been remarkably consistent since the depth of the recession in March of 2009 is when, when the market bottomed. Employment has been really good and really strong. And that's what you look at. You look at the trend over time. That's the important right. thing. And the number itself each month, is it at least valid? Because there's it's, been t- a... it's totally valid, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, yes, there's margin error and all this stuff, but it's totally valid. It's totally valuable yeah. uh, because it gives us some insights. But one month's job report taken in isolation is not the be-all and end-all, man. Well, footnote, this is a, the Washington Post a story in March of 2017 mm-hmm. where they racked up 19 separate times that mainly candidate Trump had said that the jobs report was just oh full God. on well, phony so, and made so up. Look, yeah, it's... Uh, and then now as president, when the jobs are a thing, they within his first month, he retweeted stories about how great the jobs the, report is. The, the president uh, of the United States is, <laughs> is economically incoherent right. and frequently uninformed. And he manipulates the American economy to his political advantage. I don't, I don't think that's actually a controversial thing to say. Yeah, that seems to be factual, yeah. yeah. And then as far as reporting the economy, how much is someone like that able to frustrate uh, a reporter's work? Like, like just confuse the data, make it difficult to track what's going oh, it's, on? Oh, look, it's an uphill fight. It's an yeah. uphill fight against the president and this administration in the representation, specifically in, in my area of expertise, the economy, right? Yeah. A great example is uh, the tax cuts, or, or the tax cuts, I suppose, that passed a year ago now or a year and a half, whatever it is. We were told and have been told forever by administrations proposing tax cuts that they will pay for themselves. That's especially relevant now with this one because it was a trillion and a half dollars of deficit financed tax cuts Mm -hmm. at a time when the national debt is 
19, maybe $20 trillion. Mm-hmm. And the selling point was these tax cuts are going to pay for themselves. No tax cut in history has ever paid for itself. This one we have now seen after a year after it went into effect has not paid for itself and it will not in the long term. And so it's problematical when politicians, the president and members of Congress say things that are not economically grounded in reality. And that's a fight. It's a fight every single day. Yes. Yeah, it seems like people will either find out that that's not true from reporting and, and we'll footnote a bunch of reporting on this tax cut not paying for itself. That's right. true. Or they find out in life when the economy well, shifts around. And, and, and that's the thing, right? Because a lot of the effects of this tax cut aren't going to play out for a number of years yet. And the deficit's going to balloon, but it's going to be in the out years, uh, you know. And so people are worried about paying the rent now. People are worried about, you know, their tax cut now. Not, what's this going to mean in 20 years or 10 years? And in terms of who do we attribute the economy to? I feel like there's, uh, it's not even a meme, it's just a thing that all presidents claim or have claimed for right. them that when they're in office, it's their economy. You bet. And, and look, that's legit, right? Obama did it. Bushes, the, both Bushes, every, every president does it. Yeah. And so let's just acknowledge that. To be fair to President Trump, these tax cuts and his deregulatory policies have boosted this economy in the past year and a half. Mm-hmm. Corporate profits are high. The stock market, even though it's not the economy, is generally up since his inauguration. In fact, since his election, right? Yeah, uh, it's it's been flat in 2018 plus or minus, but for 2017 it was it was booming. You know um, that sounds so good. I don't want to have any perspective on it. It sounds yeah, great. Yeah, uh, really you, positive. That, that's the catch. But look, he, <laughs> he he deserves, and I'm doing this with air quotes, right? He deserves credit for that boost. But yeah. the problem is, there was a tax cut into a fully functioning economy, an economy at full employment that was expanding already, that didn't need a fiscal boost, a, a tax policy boost, and so it will eventually slow down. And in in a number of not too many more months from now, we're going to see that economy slowing down. And then people are going to go, hmm, how are we liking the Trump economy now? And and that's just reality. So prior to that cut, because that was in, I think, December of 2017, it went into effect. So he had been president for almost an entire year. When he was claiming to take credit for the economy in all the months before that, had he had he done anything to impact it? Had no, he just simply no. been so, in office? So, so, so there are two things, right? One is he started uh, with deregulation almost immediately, and so he gets some credit for that. Oh, yeah. But but look, step back and look at the economy since March 2009, the depths of, of the stock market in the recession, right? The recession ended in, in June of 2009. Yeah. The economy has been growing now since then. And, the, and, the, and the, if there's a graph, right, it goes up, 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 up since 2009, and the Trump part starts in 2017, January 2017. So the president claimed credit, which was not perhaps his to claim, but politicians <laughs> do that, you know, whatever. Just now you kind of dated depths were March of 2009. It ended June of 2009? So, so look, so the recession started in December of 2007. And that's according Uh to, and this is my favorite committee in the whole world. It's the Business Cycle Dating Committee of the National Bureau of Economic Research. They, for some reason, are the (laughs) people who get to decide these things, right? (laughs) So what happened was they looked back, right? It's necessarily a backward-looking device figuring out when a recession starts, right? Yeah. So they looked back in 2008 and early 2009 and said, actually, it was 2008, late 2008. They looked back and said, okay. December of 2007 is when the recession started. It's when, it's when employment peaked, when things started really going south. They then tracked it 
and they looked back a couple of years later and said, okay, June of 2009 is when the recession ended. So the recession is December 2007 to June of 2009. The March 2009 number that I'm talking about are the stock market lows. I see. Right? Okay. The yeah. stock market bottomed out in March of 2009 and has been climbing basically ever since, which is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Right. It's a 10-year stock market boom. It's a 10-year economic boom. I think it's the second longest, soon to be the first. It's absolutely remarkable. And the president, President Trump did the normal political thing, which is say, hey, look what I did, even <laughs> though that's not necessarily his to claim. That's, that's so interesting that there can be that for one thing, they used hindsight to determine what yeah. the start and end was. Yeah. Great perspective. Right. Yep. Uh, and that also we can use specific indicators and and, and data points to, to date it. Just to get this out there, and this may be more than you want to know, but it used to be that a recession was judged to be two, quarter, two consecutive quarters of ne- negative economic growth. That is to say, oh. gross domestic product being negative for two quarters in a row. That's that's old think. That is not the way uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research does it anymore. They look back at things like productivity and unemployment and wages and all sorts of actual economic on-the-ground facts and say, that's when it started. And look, it picked up, and this is when it ended. And also, I, I have read various things claiming that the, the dip and the pickup kind of, they've timed out different ways for different people and in different situations. Oh, well, like on an individual basis, for yeah. sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely, for sure. I mean, it does nobody who's, you know, lost a job or working three jobs in this economy for me to say, look, the economy's grown for, right. you know, 10 <laughs> years. What's your problem? That's, that's, I mean, of course, that's ridiculous. Yeah. How difficult is it and how challenging is it to cover the economy or for even these government agencies to cover the economy through numbers? How difficult is that when so many people need so many different things? From oh, man. It, well, know? I mean, there are more sources of economic information out there, public and private, than you can shake a stick at, right? I mean, yeah. there's a government unemployment number, and then there's a private company that's got an unemployment number. It's called the ADP. There's consumer confidence that comes out from a private research group. There's retail sales. I mean, there's all kinds of data out there. Yeah. You know, if you want data about this economy, you can get it. Except now when the government shut down, then that's a problem. <laughs> I feel like we keep finding out that, uh, the government does a lot. Seems oh, like that's yeah. a thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It just it turns you out got, it's in charge of a lot you, of things. You you don't know what you're missing until you don't have it anymore. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, like and and that goes for everything from from stock offerings. Right. The Securities and Exchange Commission isn't processing initial public offerings. If you're trying to get a federally guaranteed mortgage, you're out of luck. Think about that. You've been saving and scrimping, and you finally got the down payment. And you got the twenty percent and this and that, and you're in escrow and whatever, and you're waiting for the approval, and it doesn't come. Because federal mortgage agencies are shut down. And the uh, IPO kind of thing, too. Yes. Yeah. I just never really think about how there is so much paperwork and so many steps to officially become a business. You bet. And it's amazing that just for a while, nobody can do that. No, nobody. You, uh, <laughs> you, you can probably become a business at the state level. But if you want to file to go public on, a, on a, an exchange in this economy, on a federally regulated exchange, you're not doing it now. Man. Yeah. yeah. Well, and uh, in terms of other battles, I feel like there's been... Various people trying to cover or report on the idea of a trade war happening. Yeah. And uh, I feel like a lot of people understand a war as, you know, tanks and planes and so on. How do we understand what a trade war is and also maybe see it in action? Well, you can't see it until you go shopping, right? Okay. And, and And look, we all shop and we all, you know, buy things. But depending on what you're buying, you're feeling this more or less. 
The best example is washing machines, right? The Trump administration early in 2017, and this is entirely apart from the China thing, but the Trump administration in early 2017 put a bunch of tariffs on imported washing machines. And so if you're washing- Yeah, specifically washing machines. Not dryers even? No, washing machines. Very confused. (laughs) It is what it is. If you need a washing machine now, you're going to pay 25-ish percent more than you would have two years ago. Man. Yeah. It's, it's crazy, right? So, so that's the deal. The bigger picture goes like this. We have operated generally for the past 50-ish years in this economy and in the global economy in an atmosphere of increasingly free trade, right? The North right. American Free Trade Agreement, the World Trade Organization, right? We have been looking for a lowering of tariff barriers, right? And let's remember tariffs are taxes that a country imposes on goods coming into its country. For example, we now have tariffs on imported steel, to protect domestic industries. So we now, if we want to buy steel from overseas, we have to pay more for imported steel than we would for American steel so that we can support the American steel industry. Okay? Right? That is a trade war. Because then what happens is other countries will say, no, 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 you can't just tariff our steel. We're going to tariff your steel or your you know, computer parts or your, which is what's happening with, with China now, your soybeans. Right. So so it is a very yeah. tit for tat escalating kind of thing. And the problem is that there is no mechanism by which it is easy to climb down from those increasing tariffs. We put tariffs on Chinese stuff. The Chinese put tariffs on our stuff. We put more char- tariffs on Chinese stuff, as the president has threatened to do. The Chinese threaten more tariffs. And there's no easy climb down for especially with an administration uh, in the United States, which seems determined to play this out to the end. There's no sign. There are some trade visits going on actually this week as we tape, but there's no sign of real progress. And so that's a challenge because things get more expensive for consumers who want to buy those things that are imported because let's remember tariffs are actually taxes imposed on goods that are imported and companies generally pass those taxes, those costs on to consumers, right? So those washing machines you want are going to be 25% more expensive because, you know, whatever company is importing those washing machines, they're not going to absorb the 25% hit. What is that, right? That's going to hit their bottom line. You pointed out on Twitter that the president had said we are raking in billions of dollars from tariffs, and you said the the government's raking it in from Americans. It's it's clear (laughs) the president doesn't understand how tariff works. There are two choices. He doesn't understand how tariff works or he's deliberately misrepresenting how tariffs work. Right. Because tariffs are paid in the final analysis these tariffs are paid by American consumers. Yeah, and directly to the government. Directly to the Treasury. Yeah, it goes yeah. to the general fund. So we got a tax cut, and then we are essentially doing a roundabout well, tax and, on ourselves. Right, <laughs> and, and, and that, I, I will tell you, is what's, what's making a lot of Republicans crazy, right? Because they're yeah. like, Mr. President, we killed ourselves to get these tax cuts through, and now you're turning around and putting taxes on the American public on a whole slew of goods. We would like to thank Squarespace for their support of this show that we do, the Cracked Podcast. And Squarespace is saying, hey, Cracked fans are neat. They know about a lot of things. They're interested in all sorts of concepts. Look at this. Look at this amazing group of people. Why don't we let them know they can build a website more easily than any other way by working with us? And you probably know it's 2019 or 2020 if you waited a really long time to hear this episode. Maybe you did. That's okay. It sounded like I was judging you right there. I'm not. I'm into it. All I know is you should be building 
your website with Squarespace. Their templates are created by world-class designers and they're customizable so they can be anything you want to be you online. Maybe it's your writing, products, schedule, resume, anything you want to show the world or just show pals that you give the link to, you can do it with them. And speaking of that link, Squarespace makes buying a domain very, very, very easy to do. It's a great system, and you can get exactly the web address you want, which makes it easy interpersonally. You can tell someone something that you're excited is your website, and then they'll easily find it. You can also put it on a business card. You could put it on a billboard or a plane. If you're very, very, very bold, however you want to do it, do it with Squarespace. So head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash cracked offer code cracked. One thing to repeat from the top of the show, I'll keep it super brief in case you, uh, you know, listen through that. Really appreciate it. Our first ever cracked podcast tour is this spring, Chicago, April 11th and St. Paul, Minnesota, April 12th. Tickets are in the food notes and I hope I'll see you there. This goes way back, but you mentioned studying history. Yeah. What was your What was your focus on that? American constitutional history since 1865. Why? <laughs> oh, well, I, uh, as we talk about tariffs, I I studied history in school, yeah. and mainly around the turn of the century, yeah. 19th to 20th. But that was a big tariff time. Oh you yeah. Know? And that was a time when that was sort of the major issue in a lot of like late 1800s elections. Right. Yep. And I was stunned to learn that uh, it was December 4th. Uh, Trump said, quote, I am a tariff man. I am a tariff man. And I thought he was just making up some like cool thing to call himself. And people did like bits where they photoshopped him as Superman yep. and stuff. Yep. But it turned out he was referencing William McKinley. Which no, I, is that right? He uh, has claimed do, do to be... He uh, maybe somebody told him after or something, but oh, he, I have to and, look that up. That's crazy. Yeah, and uh, McKinley was since he's so far back. We should tell people he was president in the extremely late eighteen uh, nineties, then assassinated in nineteen oh one, giving us Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, but also like this tariff thing is it's such a throwback. I was I was sort of I was like, oh, his reasons for tariffs are much more intellectual than I realized. And yet, I don't think he also understands them in the first place. I think either. they're all gut. I, I, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. also, I feel like to base economic ideas on somebody that far back, the economy well, just look, operates. It's a so completely different, literally a different global economy. I yeah, mean, come on, man, <laughs> Jesus. And the and the New York Times did a a breakdown of McKinley's views on tariffs and yeah. found that McKinley moved away from them. His final speech before he was shot, oddly, McKinley said, quote, commercial wars are unprofitable. A policy of goodwill and friendly trade relations will prevent reprisals. That's amazing. Right. That's amazing. I'm learning something out of this podcast right here. That's oh, great. Hey, hey there that. we go. But like, so even the tariff guy, he has decided wow. to be a tariff man, like was not for tariffs. And I feel like yeah. that's so dense. It's very hard to, to break it down at all. My guess is somebody told him later after the fact. But I think because this is such a, a base gut instinct thing for him, yeah. right? It's tit for tat. It's poking the other person, right? Which, as we've seen in politics, is is how he operates. That's why I don't think there's anything that's going to lead to an easy solution to this. It's the same thing for the right. shutdown, by the way, right? Yeah. I mean, he's all gut <laughs> and he's all instinct. That was very interesting when you were describing how a trade war works, that it's very hard to 
I guess win. Like well, a, well, nobody nobody wins, right? right. Because <laughs> people want, people consumers in any of the economies that are engaged in a trade war wind up paying more. So it's damaging to economies because once those consumers wind up paying more for, oh, say, a washing machine, that's X amount of dollars that they don't have to spend on a night out or right. to you know buy a new bike for the kids or whatever, right? So it it all runs through a much more complicated lens, just in terms of how you you account for the money that gets spent on the tariffs, but consumers wind up paying, and that's where the challenge is. Nobody yeah. Also, with uh, with that trade war kind of thing, it seems like the tariffs land on various industries at various times. So, like, maybe if somebody's not involved in the washing machine industry, I'm still not over that. Yeah, but, well, so here's the, here's the deal, though, right? And I don't want to get all wonky on you, but but there was... So there were steel and aluminum tariffs, okay, right, which are known as... And here comes the wonkiness. Section 232 tariffs. It's, it's the Great. section of the appropriate trade law, which I could cite for you, but it would get worse. <laughs> then, then there were what are called Section 301 tariffs. And that's where the president put tariffs on a whole bunch, in point of fact, half of everything that America imports from China, dollar value-wise, $250 billion. The president put tariffs on that stuff. And that's fabric and leather and electronic components and, and a broad spectrum of things. And that's why it's so challenging for American consumers and small businesses, because if you're a leather goods manufacturer, we've got a guy we talk to fairly regularly. He's like, yay, more tariffs on leather goods. But the fabric person's like, no, I need this. And, and how can I continue to to run my small business. The Chinese, on the other hand, are doing a more strategic sort of, we're going to poke you in the political eye, right? Mm. So they are taxing hogs and soybeans and things that will hurt the president in areas of this country where his political base lives, right? Uh. Midwest, red states, those kinds of things. Oh, that's skillful. Yeah. yeah. I, look, they're su- <laughs> look it's, they're not messing around. Yeah. With those farmers in particular, I feel like not everybody knows what is maybe a little bit of a hard thing to understand, which is that the government is sending huge subsidies to farmers just to kind of cover this conflict over tariffs and so trade. So the president heard the pain of the, the farm lobby loud and clear and came out late last year with a plan to spend $12 billion of taxpayer money to protect farmers from the tariffs that the Chinese have imposed in response to the president's tariffs, right? So, so that's the way that chain of events went. The catch, of course, is that the Agriculture Department Field Services Office that process those payments, they're shut down. <laughs> they, they may be called back, I'm sure, but, but um, you know. I learned from a program that another thing that's shut down right now is the E-Verify system. Which, which is bananas, impacts right? impacts people like farm workers. Given that this is a shutdown, at least nominally, over immigration, <laughs> right. right, and the <laughs> efficacy of a border wall, the idea that the president would shut down an agency which runs and manages the E-Verify system, which is a system that smaller and and large businesses in this economy can use to verify that the people that they're hiring are actually uh, allowed to work here, that that seems not to make sense. Yeah, so much of the rhetoric is they're coming for our jobs, which is a nonsense, but they can get our jobs easier to use their schema if (laughs) it's shut down. Nuts. (laughs) It's nutty. And then in terms of the the larger economic picture, we we talked about the economy having, at least in a stock market way and jobs numbers way, gone up for nothing but 10 years. Uh, Is there a way to detect whether a recession is coming? I feel like there are a lot of vague (laughs) headlines about that. Well, look, if if anybody or I or, or, you know, stock pickers out there or analysts, if we knew that a recession was coming, right, we, we would not be in this line of work. We'd be sitting on a beach somewhere in Cancun. Um, yeah, I have a lot of betting to do. Well, so, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Look, there, there's there are some indicators, 
that you can use. Let me just pick a couple. One would be sure. the jobs numbers. If you look and see over a period of months, the job growth is slowing down, then you have to say, hmm, what's going on? Another one which is much more instantaneous is what's going on in the global economy. Because remember, this is a global economy and we're just players in it. And if you look at Apple the other day and CEO Tim Cook coming out and saying for the first time ever issuing a revenue warning and saying the Chinese economy is slowing so much that we, Apple, right, the most valuable or at one point the most valuable company in the world, we're not going to make as much money as we thought we were, then that's a genuine problem. When Fred Smith, to get back to our FedEx example, comes out and says, hmm, we're having some issues, then you have to start and and look and, and see what's going on. Let me just give you this caveat, though. Just because the economy's grown for a long time does not mean that the economic expansion is going to end. It does not mean that the party's over, right? Janet Yellen and Fed chairs from time immemorial have said economic expansions don't die of old age. They don't expire just because they're old and it's been going for a long time. Right. What happens is there's usually a shock to an economic system that causes an economy to slow down and go into recession. And I would just posit right now that there are at least two shocks in this economy going on, and we're going to have to see how they play out. One is the trade war, mm-hmm. right? And the other one is the government shutdown. And both of those seem, uh, I think, as you said, self-inflicted. They are self-inflicted, yeah, for sure. They didn't have to happen. For sure. In a very, very so, wait, general... So let's be clear. Self-inflicted, oh, sure. self-inflicted by the government, right? I mean, the, oh, the, yeah. the financial crisis Great Recession were self-inflicted too, but they were self-inflicted by the banks right. on, on the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, The banks and, and the you know people who believed the housing market was going to go up forever. And then, and then also you mentioned that the, the Chinese economy is slowing down. Is, yeah. uh, but from what I've read, it may be trade war related or it may just be their economy is slowing down. Look, their economy yeah. is changing so fast and they've been growing f- so fast for so long that some of this was completely to be expected. And they've got, you know, demographic changes. They've got internal consumption changes. They've got lots of things going on. A trade war will not help as they make those transitions. It just won't. Yeah. Well, and as I or somebody else is reading the economic news in general, is basically any instability bad news? Is, is any shift or bump something that is either neutral or bad? Uh, no. <laughs> like, not all uncertainty is bad. Not all change is bad, right? But yeah. unpredictable, rapid change is problematical for companies and generally speaking, economies who prefer things to be stable, right? I mean, we could take a change. And if the jobs market slows down over time, fine. But if we come out next month with, you know, 50,000 jobs instead of 250,000 jobs, people are going to look at that and go, oh, my goodness. When Apple comes out and says, out of nowhere, we're going to have a problem with our Chinese sales, then people sit up and take notice. Yeah, it's not positive for sure. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> change is not in and of itself bad. Uncertainty is not in and of itself bad. Yeah, it can just all add up to something. It can can just all add up. You know, I've got a a wealth management friend of mine. We were talking about uncertainty the other day, and he said, you know, in my business, uncertainty is great because that's an opportunity to make money. It's when things are going up steadily that everybody's fat, dumb, and happy, and you're like, eh, well, who knows what's going on now? Well, also, how much of this movement is, in terms of the economy, is just people's expectations or confidence or like they asked um kevin hassett who is the chair of council of economic advisors they were asking him is this economic growth really something you can credit to trump and one thing he cited was the moment trump was elected certain consumer confidence indexes went up and so he was like well that's a that's a boost to the economy just by thinking it's boosted right so so kevin hassett is as you said the chairman of the council of economic advisors uh in the white house chief one of the chief economic advisors uh to the president and in a way, he's right. Yeah. Businesses saw a business-oriented president 
with an anti-deregulatory policy agenda who was promising tax cuts. And they said, this is awesome. This is great. We're going to have more money in our pockets. Consumers said, oh, this is great, right? We're going to get a tax cut. Everything's going to be fine. And for the past, you know, for, for all of 2017, that bore out in the stock market and, and in certainly in how people were feeling. I think come last January, the stock market kind of leveled off and has been there since. Yeah. Jobs, though, are still going. The consumer economy is still reasonably strong. So, yeah, the president gets some credit. The president gets some credit. But you have to look at that graph going back to early 2009. You just have to. Right. And in terms of just being newsletterate, like uh, the Council of Economic Advisors was not something I had known a lot about until I was <laughs> reading about this. If I'm reading and watching the news, who are... People like the Fed chair that have some sort of key role where I'm like, oh, if they say something, that's probably worth paying attention to. So the chairman of the Fed, for sure. Yeah. Larry Kudlow, who's the chair of the National Economic Council in the White House, who we've had on Marketplace. And um, is that, I'm sorry, is that separate from the Council of Economic Advisors? Yes, yes, it okay. is. <laughs> There's a National Economic Council, which was started by President Clinton. There's a Council of Economic Advisors, which goes back way farther. The difference really is that the Council of Economic Advisors are academic economists, yeah. not so much political types. Heads of the National Economic Council are more policy and political. Larry Kudlow, I'm sure you might know him from CNBC if you ever watch CNBC. He was the head of the National Economic Council, a job previously held by Gary Cohn, the president of Goldman Sachs, who uh, actually, as it turns out, resigned over the tariffs, which kind of got us to where we are in this economy. But, you know, those two voices are the White House's economic voice. Right. You know? The, the global economy is so many trillions, as you said, and it's so many countries put together. Also, the Fed chair and other people like that, they seem to be making decisions, but also driven by the numbers they're getting and what's going on. Mm -hmm. is, is there anyone who is kind of steering? Is, is anyone in charge uh, of this whole thing? I would imagine um, not, but, but I'm curious. <laughs> so, so that's a really interesting question, interesting question, and I'll give you kind of a wonky response. Oh, please. The global economy is governed by a set of norms and a set of expected behaviors. Okay. okay. And the expectation, as I said earlier, has been for the past you know, number of decades in this economy, in the global economy, that we are going to an era of free trade, of more openness and interaction and interactivity and being tied to other economies. Those have become the norms. What has happened in the past two years since the president won, and honestly, since Brexit as well, back in June of 2016, right? The Brits since leaving the European Union, right? Yeah. Has been that some of those norms are changing with, relatively speaking, a great deal of velocity. The president in the last <laughs> two years has undone things that have been worked on and, and guided this economy for decades. The Brits in voting for Brexit are undoing 40, 50 plus years of European economic history. And wow. so the great unknown now is what happens that those norms have been disrupted. And look, let me right. broaden it a little bit. If we haven't got the norms to guide us in the global economy and in the American economy, and we don't have the norms to guide us in our American political discourse, which is a different podcast, which I'm not really qualified to speak about, <laughs> then what happens? Then what happens? And we don't right. know. And we, I guess we learn by doing, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I hate to end it on a downer, but, but that's the deal, right? We don't know. If I may bring up a small downer uh, related issue. Go, go to town, man. <laughs> One thing I picked up from the show you had an expert on who said that about 45 million Americans have less than $400 in a savings or checking account. Yeah. Um, also, as this shutdown's been going on, 
There was a report from the New York Times. They had five economists all did a study and found that of the furloughed, basically laid off government workers, only 36% of them had enough money put away to cover two plus weeks without pay, yeah. one paycheck. Yeah, we, we've done similar research, right, in, in our marketplace surveys. Yeah. Some overwhelming percentage of Americans, if they wreck their car and they need $1,000, they don't have it. Right. So so anyway, so I, I interrupted. Sorry. What's your what's no, your question or what's your That's key to it. I mean, what other than the I I guess obvious thing of just trying to save more money, if I'm a smaller than billionaire, what can I do to try to prepare for troubles in life or in the broader economy economically? Let me answer that question sideways. For the sure. the defining characteristic of this economy, certainly since the Great Recession and for a period of time before that, has been the wealth gap and income inequality, yeah. right? The concentration of wealth in the top, not even top like 1%, but the top 10th of a percent or even a smaller fraction, right? Most of the gains in income and wealth in this country have gone to that fraction of this population. Uh-huh. And so the question is, at what point does that lead to, man, this is a real downer. At what point does that economic dysfunction lead to political dysfunction? Right. Right? And I, I don't know the answer to that one. I don't know the answer because you can't work 24 hours a day to make enough money to have $1,000 in the bank so you're okay if your car gets hit. You, you can't do that, right? You have kids and family and a life and, you know, maybe you yeah. can work two jobs and 16 hours a day, but that's bananas too. But there are people out there doing it. I don't know the answer to how do you prepare. And now as you look at – I keep getting darker and darker. As you look at the political <laughs> – dis- there. Don't, don't apologize. Yeah, okay, all right. yeah. <laughs> as you look at the political dysfunction, which is now starting to affect the American economy, 28-ish days, whatever we are at the taping now of this shutdown, yeah. you have to look at the government and go, what is the matter with you people? And it also seems like as a news reader or or listener, maybe it's worth being aware that as the stock market goes up and up, that doesn't boost everyone, right? Right. It's it's, uh, good to be aware that even as that major indicator goes up. So so look, the the catch with the wealth effect that I mentioned earlier is just because you feel better off doesn't mean you are. In terms of knowing about the economy, is is there any kind of upper limit to what somebody needs to know? You know, like it's the kind of thing where not everybody can fix their own car. Yeah, I don't, it's helpful I don't, if they can. Yeah. You don't have to know what the federal funds rate is, right? Let's get back to sort of ish where we started, which is which is interest rates and Jay Powell and the Fed and all this stuff, right? Yeah, sure. You don't have to understand and know the details of what the federal funds rate is. And you don't necessarily even have to know where it is, what the federal funds rate is numerically where it is at that moment. What you do have to be aware of as you read and consume economic news is the bigger picture. Okay, the Fed raised interest rates today. If I need to buy a car in a year, what's that going to mean for me? Right? right? Am I going to be better off putting my money in some kind of certificate deposit or should I just leave it under the mattress or should I mess with my 401k? The answer is don't mess with your 401k. Um, <laughs> you know, the stock market's going bananas. What do I do? Don't do anything, right? Don't do oh. anything short term, but keep yourself informed and understand the broad outlines of what's going on. Next time I talk about the jobs report on Marketplace, say, huh, that's interesting, 250,000 jobs. I wonder what it's been for the year. And and then figure that out. Oh, right. A mentality of perspective right. and right. long-term. Perspective and context. Oh, anyone could do that. That's Anybody great. can do that. <laughs> that's right. But listen to Marketplace anyway. Looking, I guess, beyond these next week or two, yeah. uh, are there any sort of events on the calendar or things looming in, in the world economy that you're uh, keeping an eye on or, the, or that the show is? Well, so the biggest thing is Brexit, right? 29th of March, the UK is set to leave the European Union. 
We yeah. have no plan for that. Well, they have no plan. I'm fine, but they have no plan, right? <laughs> My um, member of parliament is yeah. doing great. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. right. So, that, so that's a serious challenge. And, and I honestly think, look, in, in this country, the next foreseeable future, right, the next two years is going to be dominated by the political uh, mm. process, right? It's going to be dominated by Pelosi versus Trump and Trump versus Pelosi and then and then the election. Yeah. We do already have, what, four or five Democratic candidates? Oh, yeah. And yeah, that's going to... Sure. That's some job growth. We are getting a lot of <laughs> new right. candidates that's right. all the time. It, well, it's, it's a, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> there's plenty of opportunity. <laughs> Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Kai Ristall, who said like, yeah, sure, I'm making five shows a week. Why don't I do this too? Because uh, people should have a, an easier time of possessing money and being alive. What a great guy. I'm really into it. He didn't he didn't say those exact words. That's more of a silly thing, I would say. But you know what I mean? The spirit's there. You know what else is there? The food notes of this episode. It will be packed with links to things about Marketplace. If you just look up marketplace.org, that's where a lot of it is. But it's an amazing show, and I highly, highly recommend listening to it and enjoying it. It's about our entire world and makes you much more literate and much more ready for whatever happens next with the world's money, which, uh, believe it or not, is a thing that is relevant to your life. They also do a lot of reporting from Shanghai to Montana to everywhere else they can get a correspondent or speak to a regular person, and it's, it's a really wonderful show, so, so I highly recommend it, and you'll get to hear more Akai that way. There is also a section of these footnotes that I've just got labeled as example economic stories. Uh, it's called example economic stories. None of the like meat of those is particularly crucial, but we talked about a lot of kinds of headlines today. And I think they're self-explanatory and I think they're things that you've seen before. But if you feel like any of them are confusing or you want a more concrete example, I just kind of pulled some economic stories that fit that mold but it's not relevant like what's in them. It's just more of an example kind of thing uh, that maybe you can enjoy, but mainly you can see and say, okay, next time they say tariffs in a headline, uh, I'll know what the heck they're talking about and it'll be great. And beyond that, the Cracked Podcast, let me tell you something about this show. It cannot be contained by this puny studio. It will break out of these walls and panels and, oh, that's nice lighting. No, why would we break out? It's very nice. No, Alex, focus. We have live shows to do. We are going to be at the UCB Sunset Theater on Saturday, February 23rd with a show all about movies because that's, you know, right around Oscar time. And then I'm so excited about this. I, I keep saying it on these shows because it's just a big thing. We are going on our first ever live tour of the show, Chicago, April 11th, St. Paul, Minnesota, April 12th. I am uh, really looking forward to being in Illinois again and seeing Minnesota. It's just going to be a great thing to be in the upper Midwest with people doing custom live shows that we've never done before for those places. Tickets for both Chicago and St. Paul are linked in the footnotes, and then we should have those L.A. tickets on sale pretty soon. Uh, if they're not already there, check my Twitter feed or something like that, and I'll point you to them. What else would I like to point you to? Our theme music, it's Chicago Falcon, a song by the one and only Budos Band on Daptone Records. This episode was also engineered, housed, facilitated, and more by the entire team at Marketplace and at American Public Media in beautiful downtown Los Angeles. Really, really grateful to them for all the help making this possible. Also, that engineering sesh was then edited by the one-man team that is Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space where, let me tell you something, there's a very funny user named Kai Ristall. Uh, on Twitter, he is at K-A-I-R-Y-S-S-D-A-L. That's at Kai Ristall. 
Uh, and also, uh, he's just great. He, he did some great stuff with the Tariff Man quotes that particularly jumped out to me. Very, very fun. My own Twitter account is just okay, uh, but it's at Alex Schmitty if you want to check it out. And then my Instagram is at Alex Schmittstagram. I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.